Welcome to this Elite Learning Podcast CE activity. Our goal is to bring you speakers, information, and ideas to educate and challenge you to grow. Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining. I'm Jonna A. Neal, uh, Nurse Jonna, and I'm here with Dr. Sally Miller. Very excited today to have a conversation with one of the greatest nurses. I'm gonna pass it to Sally to introduce herself. Well, good morning. As you said, my name is Sally Miller. I am a nurse practitioner, have been a nurse practitioner for almost 30 years now, and currently I have a psych mental health practice here in Las Vegas. Uh, I have been a faculty member at universities, most currently Drexel University in Philadelphia, where I teach nurse practitioner students. I've been active in the professional community almost my whole career, currently a fellow of the American Academy or American Association of Nurse Practitioners. And, um, but mostly my primary love is clinical practice and teaching. So I get to do both. Also, I am a speaker with Fitzgerald Health and teach lots of the certification review and practice prep and a whole bunch of continuing education, including psychopharmacology. Fantastic, fantastic. So today I wanted to talk about something that is happening in the nursing profession, right? Not just in the nursing profession alone, but really with the healthcare workforce. And so Sally and I had a conversation recently and this kind of sparked what we're doing now, right? What we're having the conversation about today and something that we know that we've definitely, I would say are probably nodding our heads about is that in the last two years with COVID-19, right? With the, the pandemic and quite honestly, all the things that the pandemic has revealed, we're seeing a, an immense strain, right? On the healthcare system and not just that, but the people in the healthcare system, right? So this is part of our conversation. And so we're seeing an increase in the rates of anxiety diagnoses and panic disorders even. There was a research study that showed that that doubled since 2020. And of course, right, we think about the pandemic. So you recently shared, Sally, when we were talking that you were seeing more nurses in your practice that really were coming in with these types of feelings, right? Something that I think that we're all feeling right now, the anxiety, the what is happening. And so I really wanted to have that conversation because it's like we're stating the obvious. We're having a lot of conversation across the board about things like burnout. We'll talk about things like stress and anxiety, but we want to have this conversation because as a registered nurse, right, that hits close to home to hear really in real life, right? Even though we talk about stress and anxiety and what's happening right now, but in real life, like we really are struggling. You really are seeing nurses in your practice. And so I wanted to start off there. If you can just talk to us and kind of set the stage of what have you been seeing in your practice lately since the start of the pandemic? And as far as it relates to things like, you know, nurses coming in with anxiety and, and these type of manifestations. Anxiety is off the chart. In, in my practice, there are three distinct increases in the anxiety that I'm seeing. I mean, the first one, not just nurses, but in general, there are, there are just so many people that have anxiety disorders, one or more anxiety disorders, and had been in remission, had been well-controlled, functional, you know, mm -hmm. feeling good, 
And then, then boom, when the pandemic started within months, so many people that had been controlled, some for years, they were on a medication regimen, seeing a therapist, but the control just, it just immediately dropped. You know, there's a subset of anxiety disorders that is called anxiety related to a health condition. And so, you know, people with cancer, just for instance, or um, autoimmune diseases or any number of diseases that, you know, logically are anxiety producing and they struggle with that and so are managing anxiety on top of that health condition. Then to have COVID emerge, which is a health threat in itself. And of course, people with underlying disorders, people on cancer chemotherapy, people on immunosuppressants for all of those immune disorders like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and even psoriasis and inflammatory bowel disease, they're especially vulnerable because of their medications that suppress immune system, the, the anxiety just, I, I, you know, if we had hours, I could tell you stories about patients mm-hmm. who it just devastated what was a controlled diagnosis. So there's that. Um, yeah. The other thing is the new onset of anxiety disorders. I have seen people that had no history of a mental health diagnosis at all, you know, reached adulthood, middle age, even the other, the, the, the later end of middle age, whose anxiety now became so pervasive that they couldn't work, they had to come in and be seen. And then the healthcare providers alone, uh, nurses, nurse practitioners, therapists, psychologists, people who are helping other people manage their anxiety themselves developed anxiety symptoms to the extent that they really needed an intervention for it. So uh, across the chart. Wow. And that's a good point. I never even thought about that, right? I think like you're totally right. We're all experiencing anxiety across the board in different ways, healthcare professional or not. But that was a fantastic point actually about those who had had it under control and now this kind of like new emergence and bringing that back. So speaking of anxiety, right? I think we might have different ideas about what anxiety means. Like how would we define that? What is anxiety? I'm so glad you asked that question because this is, it's just so critical to managing it appropriately. Anxiety gets thrown around. It gets thrown around as a symptom. You know, we toss around the diagnoses, even my peers in family practice. And, you know, I did family practice for 25 years before I went into mental health as a specialty. And I was guilty of this too. We, we make a diagnosis of anxiety and just put it in a in a box called anxiety disorder and assume they're all the same thing and 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 they're not and there are different types of anxiety there are different anxiety disorders and they get treated differently so another one of my soapboxes that i always get on when given the opportunity is that very often the reason people that don't respond to treatment the way we expect is because they don't actually have the thing that is being treated So to answer your question, anxiety as a word, you know, anxiety is a healthy, adaptive, physiologic response to a a perceived threat, a perceived stressor. I mean, it's biological. It emerges from what we call the lizard brain. You know, in mental health, we refer to the lizard brain and the wizard brain. The lizard brain is that primitive, subcortical, very basal brain that responds to stimuli that we don't even realize. You're not even aware it's happening. Whereas the wizard brain is the higher functioning cerebral cortex where we get to think about things and usually overthink things and process them and respond that way. Anxiety comes from the lizard brain. Your brain will respond to a perceived threat 
before your higher centers even know that it's happening. So as a protective mechanism, if you are, you know, walking down a very dark, unfamiliar street late at night, hopefully you're a little anxious. It's a protective mechanism. Anxiety yeah. increases the heart rate. It dilates the pupils. It increases your, it heightens your sense of smell, even your sense of touch. You know, we talk about the hair going up on the back of our neck or getting goosebumps like we feel like something's wrong. We call it intuition, but it's not. It's your lizard brain responding to very subtle things around you, like a change in temperature or a change in scent that you don't consciously realize, but your lizard brain does. It knows something's different and it's putting you on red alert. So in that case, anxiety is protective and it's helpful and we want it. It heightens your focus. It heightens your awareness. That's a good thing. When anxiety becomes maladaptive, when it's when that response is either exaggerated to the circumstance or occurs for no obvious reason at all, then we call it a symptom. A, a maladaptive anxiety response is a symptom. It's, a, it's an issue. If it begins to interfere with your ability to go through your day-to-day -day needs and day-to-day -day function, then it's a problem that needs to be addressed. Anxiety becomes an anxiety disorder when people meet diagnostic criteria for those anxiety disorders, and it's a whole lot more than just having exaggerated anxiety. Anxiety disorders come in lots of flavors. It's, it's an overarching term. There's generalized anxiety disorder, there's panic disorder, there's social anxiety, uh, there's PTSD, there's separation anxiety. I mean, there's lots of different distinct yeah. anxiety disorders and they all have their own diagnostic criteria and they all have treatments that may be different. It's not a universal bucket. So that's what I mean when I say we just, we call somebody an anxiety disorder, you know, put them on an SSRI and then wonder why they don't get better. It's because we haven't really categorized them properly and treated them properly. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. And anxiety is a good thing, right? Is what I'm hearing in some cases, right? Like you should be anxious right before you take your exam. That's probably a good thing. You're feeling that fear. <laughs> So, okay, so when it becomes a problem, right? And I think that's where we're at now, right? I feel like we're not okay when I think about nurses, right? And I think about healthcare workforce in, in that type of setting, right? And in kind of what we're working on and saying that if it's interfering daily, would you say that's the point where this isn't normal, right? You're talking about a maladaptive that if I can't get through my, my day at work, if I can't do the tasks that I normally do. Is that a point where you would say, well, this is not, that's not normal. Now you really should see somebody. That is definitely not normal. I mean, that definitely requires an intervention. Even if you do get through the day, but you yeah. do it at such a cost to your own psyche that you may get through the day, but then you go home at night and, and it, it, it manifests as interactions with your family that are bad or that, that, that it's interfering in any meaningful way. So that is actually a good point you bring up. Some people's anxiety is an anxiety attack and it becomes very acute and they can't get through the day. They're at work, they have a, what we call an anxiety attack and it's a problem right then. And then there are those for whom it accumulates through the day and they manage to get through it and then they go home 
and 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 they're they're we, we refer to social or occupational function. When a symptom interferes with social or occupational function, then it's a problem. And so for some people, it interferes with their families and their social life and their other commitments. Either way, it's a problem. And what are the differences? I think like, what's the difference between someone who might be able to cope better maybe with those feelings and someone who really won't? And it is a very maladaptive response that they have and they are struggling in a much more significant way. Are there like risk factors that are different between those those two like scenarios? There are, there are, there are definitely people that have a physiologic predisposition to maladaptive anxiety. Uh, you know, at its basal level, it is, there are pathways in the brain, there are neurotransmitters in the brain, and if they are dysregulated, that's the term we use, because in some <laughs> cases you have not enough neurotransmitter activity, and in other cases right. you have too much neurotransmitter activity. So even anxiety as a maladaptive symptom can manifest differently in different people, depending on which neurotransmitters are affected, the nature of the imbalance, and then the pathway. We know that anxiety as a symptom and of its sister, worry, you know, worry and anxiety are not the same thing. Anxiety as a, as a response or a sy symptom is the physiologic piece. It's that pounding heart, the sweaty palms, the, you know, the shortness of breath, the tremulousness. Whereas worry is that cognitive piece, that yeah. apprehensive expectation. The brain just, you know, perseverates on a thing and won't, won't be quiet, won't turn off. There's different pathways. The worry piece is more prefrontal. The, the physiologic anxiety is more of a amygdala brainstem kind of phenomenon. So the bottom line is there's, there's all different abnormalities that may occur. And some people have underlying dysregulation that when things are fine, doesn't rise to the level of a symptom. They might always be a little bit of a worrier or always something right. to check twice or whatever, but it, it doesn't become a problem until they are faced with a significant stressor. And of course, COVID-19 is just something that nobody in the world could ever have anticipated. I mean, a catastrophic multimodal stressor that's not going away. And so people with that physiologic predisposition or tendency, that's definitely a risk factor for it. Yeah. And what are, what are you seeing? So I'm, I'm curious in this way of, you know, like, are there any common manifestations first thinking about anxiety, right? That we think about that we should be looking out for in ourselves and in, in your scenario with your patients as well. And I'm curious if there are things now that you're observing commonly, you know, that that's floating to the surface as far as anxiety or anxiety diagnoses are concerned with your patients coming in at their common complaints. And I'm, I'm wondering if these are things that, in your opinion, do you think is a direct, you know, kind of effect, ripple effect of what's happened with COVID-19 and how that's just like touched everything? For sure. So and, and, and it's different depending on the population you're talking about. Right. The people that already had an anxiety diagnosis, I, I mean, they're just decompensating. It just becomes a pervasive worry. They can't think of anything else. They, they, don't, they don't get through the day. I mean, I've had people that were working that cannot, they just cannot go to work because they're so worried about being exposed to other people. What will they encounter every time they cough? I mean, they, they truly are panicked. You know, you and I, yeah. it's, a, it's hard to appreciate really or understand how 
catastrophic that is to somebody. So for, for that population, they, they just really appear to be decompensating. There's both the, the perseverative worry and anxiety attacks. I mean, just out of the blue, they will, you know, anxiety attacks often are a loss of control. They just feel out of control and it's scary and they can't, and they can't focus. So that's that population. In the healthcare providers, it is also both. Healthcare providers have a tendency to push themselves to the limit. It yeah. is, you know, it's so interesting how intellectually we know a thing and then emotionally we don't do a thing. And, I, <laughs> yeah. you know, we as healthcare providers, we tell people all the time, whatever your symptom, don't wait until the, whether it's pain, migraine, chest pain, whatever, don't wait until the last minute. As soon as the problem begins to occur, we need to intervene, whether it's take your medication or make an appointment, as soon as the problem occurs, because early assessment equals early intervention, which equals best outcomes. Uh, that is a mantra in nursing and healthcare. We, we all know yeah. it. Don't wait till the last minute. And yet, healthcare providers, number one, they have this the shoemaker's children has no shoes phenomenon. We worry about everybody else and we don't worry about ourselves. But it is also human nature to fear illness, disease, and loss of control. And I've, I'm finding that the healthcare workers, the nurses, the nurse practitioners, and the therapists, because I feel like that's who I see most often, yeah. they feel as if they, if they acknowledge their anxiety and they acknowledge their worry, they are losing control. They're giving it up. And so they won't acknowledge it. They just don't acknowledge it until they completely decompensate and cannot function. And so for the healthcare providers, I, I would just encourage you strongly, and it is hard. It is easier said than done. Believe yeah. me, I am a real I am a realist, if nothing else. There is a whole approach to healthcare and patient management called the trans-theoretical model of change. I know that the nurses that are listening and the therapist and anyone else will know what I'm talking about. This is the Prochaska and DiClemente trans-theoretical model of change. And it speaks to the fact that the very first piece of change, whatever it is, including recognizing you have an issue, the very first piece is called the pre-contemplative stage where we don't acknowledge it. We're not, we're not, we just, it's not true, not us. You know, this, we aren't feeling this way. And so that's gonna, that's the hardest nut to crack. And I would just encourage everyone to recognize that we don't want to wait until we decompensate to seek care. So if you find yourself thinking, oh man, I, you know, this was, this was kind of rough or this was a, this was a bad day or this was a bad night because of my bad day. Maybe I should talk to somebody. If you're asking yourself, maybe I should talk to somebody, the answer is yes, you should. I mean, you should right then. It doesn't always need a medication. Not everybody with anxiety symptoms or even for that matter, anxiety disorder needs drugs. It's not like a, mm. a giving up, you know, I'm going to give up to chronic medication. But anxiety as a symptom often, I mean, it's, 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 just a sister to loss of control. And many times there are non-pharmacologic ways. There are, there are therapeutic interventions that help you regain that control and focus that control. So I, the best advice I can say is if you find yourself saying, hmm, maybe, is this a problem? Should I? The answer is yes, it is a problem yeah. and you should. That's a good gut check. And I think, you know, in my opinion anyway, 
as a nurse, I imagine that there's got to be some type of a stigma, right? We think we always say you got to fill your cup first before you can fill somebody else's. But I think that the idea of, to your point, acknowledging that I'm not as whole as I, as I think I should be, then I can't. I can't possibly take care of other people. And so I wonder if that's a barrier too, that you think in, in that way to, you know, admitting it that something's wrong with me, that's what I feel like, then how can I take care of somebody else in that way? And you know, the other piece of that is it is also human nature to feel that if you plow through a symptom, you are doing well. Yeah. And again, you see you see this with people after an MI. You, I mean, all the time, people with a migraine or pain or depression. If you can push through it, if if yeah. I if I can keep doing what I need to do, then I am stronger. I am stronger than this thing, and mm. and and people feel good about that. Except that to a certainty, one thing we know about the human mind and body is if you try to suppress a normal response. It is going to find another way out. It's like a game of whack-a-mole. If I, if I keep this from happening, that same energy is going to come out in some other way. And it's usually maladaptive because it's not the way it's supposed to come out. So if you just ignore your anxiety and push it down and push it down, it's going to find another way out. And it's usually not going to be a good one. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that sometimes we champion that. And I'll say even... In healthcare, I'll speak just for nursing alone. Sometimes we champion that push through, you know, attitude that it's great that you worked a bajillion shifts in a row and hours on a row. And you really were feeling heavy in the weight of that. And we sometimes champion that type of kind of behavior versus really protecting, you know, our, our own safety, our own mental health safety. And so now that then brings me to burnout. Right. And the same way that we talk about anxiety a lot, I feel like I'm hearing and experiencing amongst my own peers, right? Their burnout and the anxiety. And so that's bubbling up a lot to, to the surface. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. And if, you know, there's anything that you think, how is that related between this burnout conversation that we hear a lot, that we talk about a lot, and anxiety? I think I, burnout is exactly is exactly that. It leads to that maladaptive expression of anxiety. You know, burnout is it really is more of a lay term. Uh, it mm. can it can apply to work or a relationship. You know, home life. I mean, as by definition, burnout is that point you reach at which the thing that you are doing no longer provides that internal sense of accomplishment or, yeah. or identity, you know, whatever it is. So in this case, in the case of nurses, because it's an, it's an excellent example, burnout is that place where you, you just keep doing it and going through the motions, but you just don't feel good about it. You don't feel like you're doing anything positive anymore. You question if you are an asset. You, nurses, I see nurses questioning if this is really what they want to do. Do they want to go into something entirely different? Because they start to feel like they just don't get that internal sense that they used to get. That's burnout. But then, then it, there's an economical piece. You know, not all nurses can afford yeah. to just stop being a nurse, and so they plow on because they need to do it to pay the bills, et, et cetera, et cetera. So, like I said, I'm a realist. I understand that it's not possible for everybody to just stop working. 
right. if they feel burnout. But and there, there's a but there. You, you do have to do something because that will that will lead. I mean, that produces that vulnerable state at which if you have any underlying tendency to develop anxiety as a symptom, that's when it's going to happen. I mean, like every other symptom or every other physiologic abnormality, we can usually compensate to a point. But when you yeah. lower your resistances, your compensatory mechanisms, they're useless. And then this thing that you've been managing for so long suddenly becomes overwhelming. So, I mean, the short answer to burnout, and, and I, I've, I have told so many nurses this in the office, you have just got to step back. And I, I know it's hard. If you can't, if you can't resign, and I'm not even suggesting you should resign, but if if you've been on a COVID unit and you just can't do it anymore, because the emotional toll of watching people in the hospital with COVID, in the beginning they were all on ventilators and so many people were dying right. because nobody knows what to do. Now the approach to COVID has become a little bit different. By the time you are hospitalized and ventilated, I mean, ventilation really is the last step now. So those people are really, really sick and they need all sorts of support. They need emotional support. They need physical support. The nurses are worried about their own health. The family units need support in so many ways. So of course it's going to burn you out. You factor in the fact that there is such a staff shortage. And so people are always being asked to work extra shifts and double shifts and six days a week. And, yeah. and you know, the money is out there. They're being tempted with these enormous hourly rates to do it. So for younger people who are maybe building a career and the finances are really important, they do it and they do it. And then suddenly they get to that place where I'm burnt, I'm burnt, I'm burnt out. So maybe not stop it, but perhaps it's time to go to a non-COVID unit. For any nurse that wants to change their his or her area of focus right now, you can do it. There is enough of a shortage that if, if you need to step back from that COVID unit, go to a non-COVID unit. And if you have to change, change employers, you can do that too because the need is out there. If you've been working uh, six 16-hour shifts a week, it's just time to take even a, a few shifts off or a day off and recharge a little bit. So when something is when something produces this sort of symptom in your life, you just have to back up and manage it. And there are definitely ways to do that without leaving your career or leaving your job and not being able to pay your bills. And and I by the time I see them, they're asking for FMLA. They need yeah. to take weeks off, but they just they have to either step back from the role or step back from the unit. It's not even all about COVID. There are nurses who work in the ICU that it's just not, it's hugely stressful for them. And I, they come home every night and they have a headache and an upset stomach and they fight with their significant others. And I tell them, this isn't hard to figure out. You have to get out of that unit. You have to go work somewhere in another unit. That's you right. just have to step back from it. No, that's right. And I read a, a research article last week, I believe it was very recently. And it said something like two out of five nurses in the next two years said they plan to resign. And, and thinking about that on top of right the shortage that we're already anticipating happening is horrifying. One, just that uh, you know anybody in their profession that they chose to do would rather say, I wouldn't wanna do this anymore because this is so bad. And two, we know what those implications would be like, right? On the other side, if we really did have two out of five nurses 
leaving in the next two years. So that's really sound advice. And sometimes it's it's so much easier said than done. But I think it's important. It's important. We we have to stop because the outcome right on the other end of not looks pretty bad. Change is hard. I mean, it is. Yeah. Change is hard. That's why we have a trans theoretical model of change. It's hard and there are numerous steps. But if if your anxiety in this, the conversation we're having is about anxiety, if your anxiety is becoming so pervasive, then you, you just have to do something about it because it will, I mean, it will eventually lead to an emotional implosion. And then, then you won't be able to work anyway. So better to make the change now while you have a choice about where you can go and how you can make those adjustments. I agree. I agree. Is there anything that you would like to share with our audience about anxiety, about this conversation that we're having, or our therapist, anyone who's listening now, um, you know, that we haven't spoke about, but you really want them to, to hear or to know? So number one, not every anxiety symptom is an anxiety disorder. Not every anxiety symptom needs a drug. So before assigning those diagnoses and putting people on the generic standard medications, either really just take a little extra time to accurately diagnose their anxiety, it, is it a disorder or not, and then treat them appropriately. I'll give you a real quick example. It's not a COVID example, sure. but a quick example from primary care. Uh, a patient came in asking for, she was anxious, very anxious. Uh, couldn't sleep, worried all the time, panic attacks, a classic anxiety type patient. Mm -hmm. And she was asking for medication for anxiety. So the first thing you need to do is find out if there is a cause of anxiety or not. If there's no obvious cause, then it is largely biochemical and medication is necessary and very effective. But sometimes there is a distinct cause to that anxiety and all the medication in the world won't eliminate the cause. In this circumstance, this lady was in a relationship that was abusive and violent repeatedly, and now she was beginning to worry about her children. So of course she was anxious. This is a circumstance where anxiety, it wasn't a symptom, it was a very appropriate response to an environment in which she lived where she felt threatened every day and night. So the answer for somebody like that isn't, oh, here, have a, have a SSRI and let's see if you're better. The answer is to really work with this patient on how she can get out of that environment. And I know not everybody can, and not everybody can right away. So it's a multimodal intervention here. But, but my point is, whenever there is a cause of anxiety, you, you really have to identify that cause and work very hard to mitigate that cause in some way not just write the prescriptions. Number one, identify if they actually have an anxiety disorder or not. And then number two, if there is an identifiable cause, recognize that we have to work on trying to mitigate that cause. Excellent, that's fantastic advice. So swim upstream, address the underlying cause always, right? Awesome. Sally, I appreciate you so much for joining me today and having this amazing dialogue and necessary dialogue. And thank you everyone for tuning in. I'm Jonna Emil, and on behalf of myself and Dr. Miller, thank you for joining us. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to and learning from this podcast CE activity. Did you know that you can listen, subscribe, and share elite learning podcasts 
on podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, and Google? Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform today and never miss a new episode. To earn your certificate, follow the prompts to complete the CE activity.